This is an ABC podcast. Canberra, 26th of January, 1981. Prime Minister Malcolm Fraser is making a speech. Young men and women will be given opportunities that are second to none in any country, anywhere. And in the past, Australia had some of the world's best coaches. Harry Hopman, Harry Gallagher, Fran Stamford, Forbes Carlyle and Don Talbot himself, to name but a few. But the work has often been made more difficult and they have at times been seduced overseas because of lack of encouragement and lack of facilities in Australia. Now that, I believe and hope, has passed. And so on this Australia Day 1981, I take great pleasure indeed in declaring open the Australian Institute of Sport. Yes, the Australian Institute of Sport has just turned 40. Hello, I'm Amanda Smith, and here on Sporty, some reflections on those earliest days at the AIS. Did it fulfil its promise? And what's become of it 40 years on? The Australian Institute of Sport began in 1981 with 153 athletes across eight sports. One of the very first coaches to be appointed was Wilma Shakespeare. She was head of netball. And Wilma, part of the spur for establishing a National Institute of Sport was Australia's performance at the Montreal Olympics in 1976, wasn't it, where we managed just one silver medal and four bronze. What was the feeling at that time? Well, it was a pretty disappointing performance. It's the only time we didn't win a gold medal. And there'd been a lot of concern about our preparation not being at world pace. And what Montreal did was actually become the catalyst for change. You know, it was simmering there. And when that happened, like Australians don't like no gold medals. So the politicians started to take note. And Bob Ellicott in particular. Who was the Minister for Sport. Yeah. He was absolutely critical. He grabbed the idea and ran with it and really deserves a lot of credit. But for this new institute to continue to get federal support and funding, it had to succeed. All the early programs, the eight initial programs in Canberra, we're under a lot of pressure to get results fairly quickly. In, in some of the early articles about the IS, it described it as the gold medal factory. And even the Australian government had only proposed to give funding for four years. So there was pressure on each of the sports. And I, I reckon it probably took about 10 years where the IS was really on a solid footing of knowing what it was about, how to operate with the different sports. That's Greg Blood. He's a sports historian with an interest in the development of sports policy in Australia. And he was the librarian at the Australian Institute of Sport for nearly 30 years from its early days. Now, in 1981, the total budget for the AIS was $1 million. That really didn't stretch very far. And there are just limited resources all the way around. And I remember one of the basketball coaches telling me that when he turned up to coach, He only had two basketballs given to him, but he said, I have 20 athletes, male and female athletes, 
and he said they all require a ball. So they had to go out to local basketball clubs to try and gather up the ball. So in the early days, there wasn't a lot of resources. We didn't have a lot of money and really had to make do. But it was this culture of excellence. And I don't think it's talked about enough, but gold medals are never guaranteed. You don't know what your opponents are going to be like. What you can strive for is doing an excellent performance. And to me, everybody at the Institute saw themselves as part of that excellent performance. That's to me what it was about. And you, you talked to a lot of people from those early days. It was about that camaraderie and everyone doing their bit. What was clear by 1981 was that Australia could no longer rely on natural talent alone for international sports success. We had to get scientific. Dick Telford was the first sports scientist appointed to the new Institute of Sport. He'd been working in Melbourne doing academic research in sports physiology when he was headhunted. <laughs> I can remember it very clearly. I was giving a, a talk at Deakin University down at Geelong and I got a couple of curly questions from the audience, which was fairly large and I couldn't see because the room was darkened. Curly questioned about the type of research, uh, it's almost slightly aggressive questions. And after that, I recognised the same voice from the fellow that came and asked me some other questions. And uh, after he asked me those questions, he asked me the final question, which was, why didn't you apply for the Institute of Sport? head of sports science and sports medicine. And I said, well, because I was interested in the work I was down here, I've only been here a few years at that job and I didn't think it was appropriate for me to apply for the job in Canberra. He said, well, I'm offering you the job right now and I'll give you 24 hours to think about it. Get back to me. I'll see you later. And who was this? <laughs> this was Don Talbot, the uh, first director of the Institute of Sport. He'd been there a couple of months uh, apparently, he thought, well, you know, I'd played a bit of sport and I'd done a bit of research directly with athletes and their coaches, and I think he thought that uh, that was just about what he wanted. What was your brief, Dick, and your mission there? My brief was, go ahead and do it, please. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was sort of the cue as to set up a philosophy of sports science and sports medicine. I had to generate the sports medical staff as well on the clinical side of things because we had nothing at that stage in 1981. And I was given the task of uh, thinking about how we could best improve Australia's position of, you know, previous to Montreal anyway, of only winning four or five medals, how we could really improve our position in our Olympic standing. That was really the brief I got. For a coach like Wilma Shakespeare, these early years were heady times. Well, particularly under Don Talbot, it was really exciting. He had a concept and he knew we were way off the pace. And he was continually looking to see how he could bridge that gap. And in particular, the delivery of the backup services. You know, we hardly used, for example weight training, particularly in netball. Um, we hardly use biomechanics or psychology or physiology. And having a band of these people who could introduce us to that way forward was really exciting. And also working with the other coaches, like I always enjoyed talking to the athletics coach about the things they did to get speed because, you know, the first couple of steps we take are critical. That explosive strength is, is very important to us. And, you know, I copied a few of their little training 
exercises and yeah, and so there, there was not only the specialists being introduced, but coaches shared their knowledge too. And I, I thought, you know, it was a, it was a great time to be there. We all knew it wasn't going to be easy, and that we would need to produce results. But everybody believed this was possible because we were going to work in a modern sports world, not an antiquated one that we'd worked in. Well, the, the AIS was often described back then as a medal factory, a gold medal factory. <laughs> but among the, the original eight sports at the Institute, yours, netball, wasn't an Olympic mm. sport. How and why did it make the cut originally? <laughs> I know. It was always fascinating because actually my husband's an Olympian. He's a rower. Mm-hmm. And we were always very interested in this concept and idea. And we always thought well, it was Pete who was going to have this opportunity. He was just moving into coaching and we thought he might be able to work there. And uh, we were just quite stunned when it was announced and I could have the chance to go. I think initially there were quite a few other sports thinking, like you said, um, what are they doing here? (laughs) I always felt initially we had to earn our position there. And I I think we worked hard to do that, both the athletes and myself. Yeah, I I often sit and wonder and think, what if, what if we hadn't have had that opportunity and taken it? Like, would we have faded into the background? The, The other thing we need to say, though, is that netball has always been a very successful sport in Australia on on a global stage, and if you yeah. want to pick winners uh, for this new institute, then why wouldn't you pick netball? Yeah, that, that's a fair comment because I think we're probably the only sport that we had something like four out of the last five world championships, mm. you know, yeah. In this new environment of athletes and coaches and sports scientists all under the one roof, how did it work? What we were doing is... Uh, try to answer the questions that coaches had, you know. In other words, how can we get the best out of this particular athlete in terms of their training, their nutrition, their psychology, their biomechanics, their motor learning and so on? Now, in the early days, (laughs) um, I had had to try and answer everything. So that was a little bit tough, but we got our way through it and got some good results. And, And I think the coaches really got value out of the, the sports scientists' thoroughly understanding the needs and the psychology of the athletes. And I say psychology even if I'm talking about a physiologist because what a physiologist says to an athlete as the athlete's walking away from a test or whatever is a very powerful psychological stimulus one way or the other. Give me an example of, of what you oh, mean. Well, let's, let's say um, I'm in the swimming pool and I'm measuring some blood lactates at the end for uh, Bill Sweetnam, the head swimming coach at the time. And they're doing a particular set of, say, a repetition set of 100 metres uh, on a two-minute cycle or something like that. And I'm measuring the lactates, and I, I notice that the lactates uh, show an improvement in an athlete along the way. It might be lower at a certain speed, which suggests they're developing better aerobic power and control of their bloodstream while they're working. And I would just say to the athlete, um, okay, that's great. Your lactate has gone from, uh, you know, 7.4, it's down to 6.8. That's that's a good result. That's going to mean that other things being equal, in better shape, you're a better swimmer. Now, 
just something like that off the cuff without going overboard or saying any more than that will make a, a hell of a lot of difference to a swimmer in terms of how that swimmer is perceiving that particular training, knowing that, that he or she has just done two hours in the pool in the morning, another two hours at night and done some gym. So that, that sort of feedback without them recognising that psychology, because I'm not a psychologist, I'm a coach and a scientist, but uh, that is the sort of work that I was uh, referring to. Mind you, in the early days, the sports psychology didn't always work too well, as the netball coach Wilma Shakespeare discovered. There was quite a bit of learning to go on. Like I remember the first time we used a sports psychologist, um, Don had brought one over from the States, and the whole team met with him. And quite honestly, I I went to Don after and said, "Uh, I don't think that's the best way to do this. I think you need small groups or you need individual work here. Why? What happened? uh, A couple of those who were threatened a bit felt this was the time to throw out their dislikes and it probably stirred up more problems than it solved. You know, I can remember saying to Don, yeah, well, I think I've got to get in there now and sort out a few things. Whereas later on, we had an English psychologist join us and I saw the great value in it. And it was a bit of... um, learn by experience. Yes, that works. No, we need to do it a different way. And I think all the sports did a bit of that. What you're really describing, I guess, is that it was all pretty experimental. Oh, it was. Because we were in that environment that sort of challenged you and said, can you find new ways? Can you do new things? And yeah, I loved that part of it. You're listening to Sporty, marking the 40th anniversary of the creation of the Australian Institute of Sport in Canberra. It's Amanda Smith with you. Now, in its foundation year, the AIS was home to 153 promising young athletes. But in 1988, a new and different experiment was launched there. Russell Short, a discus and shot put thrower, was the very first athlete with a disability to get a scholarship to the AIS. I was the I was the guinea pig in there, a vision impaired male thrower, which would have been, I suppose, the easiest to facilitate in the AIS. So uh, I was sort of top of the tree domestically at the time. So I was it. And what's your what's your level of sight? Uh, level of sight, I got macular degeneration or Stargardt's disease, but I've got probably one sixtieth NHI. So I've lost all my central vision. I've only got peripheral vision. Mm. So, which means I can navigate through gyms and and things like that. Well, how radical was it back in 1988 for you to be going to the AIS? I think it was unheard of. We'd just been to nationals and nationals were segregated then. You had the blind nationals, you had the wheelchair nationals, you had the uh, nationals for amputees. And it it was the start of it all coming under an umbrella system. That embrace both able-bodied and disabled athletes? Yeah, well, the the AIS was purely able-bodied athletes and they thought we're missing out on a a whole range of athletes that can go on to do Paralympics World Championships. What, What brought about the shift in thinking at the AIS? I think it went from a disabled athlete to an athlete with a disability. Where the focus was on being a sports person. Yeah, more than, more than the disability. Foremost. Yeah, so, um, and I got in there and I was treated uh, no different to anyone else, which was brilliant. You know, you try to emulate people that are, are throwing around you. So 
for myself, if you if you sight impedes you, you know, with I'm always looking down, so that comes into my throw. So I've got to fight against natural instinct to to get as close to an able-bodied technique as possible. Yeah. So so during the, your, your time there, how did it work for you? Did did you train any differently to others in the track and field program? No. Well, I couldn't I couldn't slot into the Paralympic side of things because there was no one else. Yeah. So uh, no, no, no. Merv Kemp and um, so Merv was your coach. Yep. Um, brilliant man. Um, all the top throwers from around the country were, were brought in, and I trained alongside you know World Cup throwers, um, Olympians, Commonwealth Games medalists, which. Like looking back, it just dragged me up. I didn't want to look foolish, so I had to, you know, knuckle down and do the work. Was that tricky at times for you, though? Um, yeah, it it was. You'd sort of go, oh, you know, what am I doing here? You know, am I sort of worthy, sort of thing? But um, I ended up throwing at able-bodied nationals in '88 and actually come away with the silver medal in the in the discus against able-bodied guys. So that was validation, and um, you earn respect. Were there any things that, you know, were particularly difficult for you to do, though, in the sort of fitness training or anything like that? The the only thing that I can remember that uh, Merv made me do differently, um, I was getting dizzy running the steps of Bruce Stadium because I was concentrating so hard on hitting each step. And right, I, getting up and down the steps. Yeah, my eyes were going a bit funny. So... Um, I said, oh, Merv, I don't think I can do this. So he goes, oh, that's all right. And he had a bit of a concerned look. And he said, follow me. And he grabbed a um, grabbed a bucket and he walked over to the indoor stadium and there was a 40-metre ramp on a, I don't know, 30-something degree angle. And he said, there you go. You can do your sprints up and down that. There's the bucket if you feel sick. <laughs> so there was no compromise for me, really. Um, sometimes I did a bit of circle work trying to find the, the discuses and with helpful encouragement from about 40 or 50 metres away from Merv, not always complimentary, but uh, easier to find the shot put than the uh, discus. Why? Well, the shot put makes a dirty great hole in the ground and it only goes, you know, 15 metres away from you. A discus hits the ground and slides and rolls and can end up anywhere. Yeah, mm. yeah. So um, a lot of fun times at the Institute. You know, lots of uh, stories that I really can't tell. <laughs> Darn. <laughs> yes. And Russell Short was the first athlete with a disability admitted to the Australian Institute of Sport. He competed in the Paralympic Games from 1988 through to 2016. He won a total of 12 medals, including six gold medals. And the first of many successful Paralympians subsequently trained at the AIS. And what about Olympic success? What difference has the AIS made since that rather poor showing at the Montreal Games of no gold and just one silver and four bronze medals? Wilma Shakespeare and Dick Telford. Uh, In Atlanta, 96, by that stage, we'd won 41 medals. In Sydney, we won 58. We went that bit step further, but then we had the home ground advantage. But I think comparing Montreal and Atlanta going from 5 to 41, ranked from 32nd in the world in the Olympics to 7th, sort of indicated what the Institute had done. I think it delivered very, very well till Sydney. And then I think you'd have to question, we just seem to be struggling to find our way. And now you'll see the AIS has become more the manager of the high performance program across Australia, rather than the delivery 
part. Well, now you went on to become the foundation director of the Queensland Academy of Sport <laughs> and then the foundation director of the English Institute of Sport. Have you been back to the AIS, though, in, in recent times? Yeah, I have. It was really quite um, concerning to drive past the AIS. You know, T- tell me not... why. Oh, well, because it was empty. Like, when I left, it was still a very thriving place, full of athletes, full of coaches, full of scientists, and very focused on what they were doing. And it really made me shiver to think, what's happened here? You know, we've lost our way again, have we? Like, that building gave us a huge opportunity to become world-class. And I I know they're working very hard at the moment to try and turn things around, but past Sydney, like the metal tally tells us, we've been heading in a downward spiral. And a lot of the world have not only caught up with us, but surpassed us again. One reason that the Canberra campus of the Australian Institute of Sport is not used as much now is because separate institutes or academies of sport have been set up in each state and territory. They were actually envisaged right from the start. And the budget that the AIS once had to train athletes now goes to the national organisations for each sport. So what is the role of the AIS these days compared to how it was 40 years ago? Peter Condy is the current head of the AIS was really focused at that point on a campus in Canberra and about 150 athletes covering eight sports was, to be honest, fairly rudimentary. For example, the swimmers trained in in a suburban pool in nearby Dixon and the, the netballers trained on outdoor courts. And the campus remains really important component of what the AAS does, but it now has a very different role alongside that, and that is as essentially the leader of a network of institutes right around the nation. So there's that leadership role across the institutes. We continue to play a role on the frontiers of sporting performance, and those things have changed over time. So, you know, back in 1981, that was very much focused on the uh, development of sports science and sports medicine, which were sort of in their infancy. But today that's sort of progressed and the focus has moved into other things, whether it be data analytics, machine vision, artificial intelligence, some of the sophisticated engineering linked to biomechanics and so on that are are conducted uh, at the campus in Canberra. So in a way, it continues to play that role on the leading edge, but the leading edge has moved, not surprisingly, over those 40 years. And there's no doubt that uh, there are countries around the world that looked at the AAS of 10, 20 years ago and have taken the insights from that, adapted to their own particular circumstance, and in some cases have surpassed what we currently have. Our job right now is to leapfrog once again and and be that sort of place where other countries want to come and find out what we're doing, what's Australia doing, why are they so good? There has been some criticism that this unique culture of athletes coming together in a a flagship world-class facility with coaching and science staff has been dismantled, destroyed. How do you respond to that criticism? There are always those detractors who want to go back to the future, as I say, but we've got to look forward and it's not always about 
going back to, I don't think there's any way we could go back to doing what some would have, which would say, take all the money away from sports and only give people money if they come to Canberra. I don't think that works. don't think it works that way anymore in sport. We've got to look to the current situation and not merely replicate what might have been successful in the past. Peter Condy, who's the current CEO of the Australian Institute of Sport. Dick Telford was involved in setting up the state and territory sports institutes and academies. He thinks the challenge remains to get the balance right between these and the National Institute. The heart of the Institute of Sport beats in Canberra. It was born in Canberra and there's always going to be a place in Canberra for that to happen. But we developed much of that particular system in the 80s. You know, we've got to keep on thinking about how we're going to do things better. So I, I'm not, I, I haven't been as worried as a lot of other people in, in that regard, Amanda, because I just see the system working towards the optimally best system. And I do think in future, and I certainly hope in future, that the heart of Canberra develops like the heart that I like to see in my athletes, you know, with a bigger stroke volume, you know, bigger capacity, pump more blood around and spread the word around and, and, and collaborate with all these places around Australia in a healthy way. As the Australian Institute of Sport has just turned 40, though, it's also a time to reflect on what it was like in those early days. Wilma Shakespeare? Yeah, I, I just thought it was a great chance to work at world pace and to understand what that was, no matter which sport you were. And I also loved that you could share information and question each other with coaches and with support staff. That was a whole new world. Like when I first coached the national team, I was a phys ed teacher and I took leave and then came back to my job. And here I was now working as a full-time professional coach of netball. In fact, I think I was the first one in the country that had this opportunity. And I just thought, wow, this world has changed so much for the better. And Dick Telford, what was the mood like back in 1981? It was one of anticipation and excitement and not being certain as to which direction we're going, how we were going to really combine sports science with coaching to be able to help them get medals be able to help them get the very, very best out of their athletes. And that was my charter all the way through, not publishing papers as it may be now, but to provide information to coaches. So it was one of excitement. And I suppose as time went on, uh, we became more confident in what we were doing. And particularly as the medals started coming along, we started to enjoy ourselves more and more. It became a terrific 20 years experience for me at the Institute. And happy 40th birthday to the Australian Institute of Sport. This program is dedicated to the memory of Don Talbot, the first director of the AIS, who died in November last year. He was, of course, also a great swimming coach and the head coach of the Australian swimming team from 1989 to 2001. We lost another great Australian swimming coach recently. Harry Gallagher died on the 21st of January and he's the subject of Sporty Next Week, an interview I did with him some years ago that's probably my favourite interview ever. He was a character. Harry Gallagher coached a lot of champions, most famously Dawn Fraser, and their paths crossed when he took some swimmers he'd been training in Sydney at Dremoyne to the bigger pool at Balmain. 
Well, you know, by this stage I'd probably won a couple of state titles, so I thought I was probably the greatest coach Australia had ever seen, and I was only a bum, really. But I met a bigger bum when I went to Valmain because that was Dawn Fraser. We went over there one day to train in the long 100-yard course pool. We went there, and we're halfway through our training program, and Dawn Fraser arrived with all her little hobos from Balmain and started to dive bombers out of the water. I was quite irate and went up and told her so, and she abused me back just as hard as I abused her, and that was the way we started off. What a beautiful romance. (laughs) And, you know, it was a, a sort of a professional love almost straight off. And Harry Gallagher had a million stories about his love of swimmers and swimming. You'll be able to hear some more of them next time here on Sporty as we pay tribute to his memory. Sporty is produced by Damien Rabbit and I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.